and the criminal justice system, Ankh-Mor Pork is represented by two unequally important groups, the patrician who runs everything, and the city who watch who no one gives a fuck about. These are their stories. Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So grab your protective, make sure you chastise your thurables, and join us on our journey through Guards, Guards, and the Complete Discography. Tonight we are reviewing Guards, Guards, uh, the eighth book in the Discworld series, uh, and a really good one. Originally printed in uh, 1989 by Glance Limited. Yeah, it's it's a beefy book, and it's a good one. I'm Anna, but for tonight's meeting, you should refer to me as Sister Painter. I am Lance Constable, second class Justin. I'm Aaron, acting head of the Beggars Guild. I seem to have fallen on hard times. Could I ask you to spare me a mere thousand dollars for a five-star hotel room for the night? I am Minna, and do you have a moment to talk about the Moorpark Sunshine Sanctuary for Lost Dragons? Before we get to a plot summary, I, I do have something that I found through looking up the Wikipedia page. Um, so AKA apparent- the Danger Zone. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I only look at these after I'm done with the book. But I feel this is very this is very important for this book. So in 2003, the BBC carried out a survey on books called The Big Read to find the nation's best loved novel of all time. The Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. counting as one book, finished as number one. Guards, guards finished in the best of spots. 69. Nice. 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 We all knew the correct answer to that. I also want to read the dedication because I think it's very important. They may be called the Palace Guard, the City Guard, or the Patrol. Whatever the name, their purpose in any work of heroic fantasy is identical. It is, around about chapter 3, or 10 minutes into the film, to rush into the room, attack the hero one at a time, and be slaughtered. No one ever asks them if they wanted to. This book is dedicated to those fine men. And also to Mike Harrison, Mary Gentle, Neil Gaiman, and all the others who assisted with and laughed at the idea of L-Space. Too bad we never used Schrodinger's paperback. What? (sighs) Bless Terry. (laughs) So, we start with a almost procedural-style cold open where we're introduced to the plot by a secret brotherhood, the unique and supreme lodge of the elucidated brethren of the Ebon Knight. Uh, their goal t- is to overthrow the patrician of Ankh-Morpork and install a puppet king under the control of the Supreme Grand Master. Using a stolen magic book, they summon a dragon to strike fear into the people of Ankh-Morpork and make them, I guess, wish for a better class of tyrant or something. Um, and also specifically, small vegetable shops, owners of fancy coaches, and others that have shown themselves unworthy to the brethren, I mean, to the side of right and good. 
Once a suitable state of terror and panic and lucrative business opportunities has been created, the Supreme Grandmaster proposes to put forth an heir to the throne, quote-unquote, who will slay the dragon and rid the city of tyranny and also be a useful idiot for the true power behind the throne, who will almost certainly not eventually be the entirety of the group if the Supreme Grandmaster has his way. It is the task, uh, potentially, of the Night Watch, or what remains of them. Captain Vimes, Sergeant Colon, Corporal Nobbs, and new volunteer, Carrot Iron Fanderson, who comes to the city with a mysterious backstory raised by dwarves after being found as a baby in the woods by uh, the, these dwarves with uh, a sword and a mysterious birthmark. Uh, it is their job to stop them with some help from the librarian of the Unseen University who is just trying to get the stolen book back. The watch uh, is in bad condition. They're regarded as a bunch of incompetents who walk around ringing their bells late at night, very quietly, so as not to attract any attention, and this is really mostly true. Uh, at the start of the book, they've lost another veteran who tried too hard at the wrong time. Uh, the arrival of Carrot changes this. Carrot, with an inherited stunning lack of nuance thanks to his dwarvish upbringing, has memorized the laws and ordinances of the cities of Ankh and Morfark, and on his first day tries to arrest, well, sorry, no, he does arrest the head of the Thieves' Guild for theft. Uh, the Thieves' Guild, of course, is permitted a quota of legally licensed thieving, uh, a veterinary modernization that the Book of Ancient Laws does not take into account. Carrot's enthusiasm uh, wakes something in Vimes, the watch should stop crime, not ignore it. Vimes begins investigating the dragon's appearances, which, or sometimes the dragon just sort of appears near them, um, which leads to an acquaintance with Lady Sybil Ramkin, a breeder of swamp dragons and old Morpark money. Ramkin gives an underdeveloped dragon, Errol, to the watch as a mascot, and lots of subreddit R dads with pets shenanigans occur. The leader of the Elucidated Brethren, is initially successful in controlling the dragon, uh, but he's not ac accounted for the dragon's own intelligence. The recently banished dragon finds a path in through the Elucidated Brethren's collected sort of, I don't know, small-mindedness, uh, leeches off the Unseen University Library for a permanent energy source, and... Uh, makes itself king of Ankhmore Park through fire and terror, uh, keeping the head of the Elucidated Brethren, who we learn is Lupin Wants, uh, veterinary secretary, as its mouthpiece, and demands that the people of Ankhmore Park bring it gold and uh, a monthly meal in the form of a virgin sacrifice. Uh, Vines confronts Lupin Wants after he, after Vimes follows the clues in and puts it together because Vimes is a policeman through and through. After a brief exploration of the rules of the palace guard confront confronting the lone unarmed hero, he is imprisoned in the same cell as the patrician, who has been leading a relatively comfortable life in his contingency cell with the help of the rats he uses as spies. We have a spectacular Vimes veterinary interlude where their relationship is really cemented. And Veterinari casually observes Vimes determinedly trying to dig his way out in uh, what I think is probably a prequel to a certain scene in um, Going Postal. 
Eventually, the librarian shows up, and because the librarian is 300 pounds of ape, does very quick work to uh, the exterior of the cell. And he runs to the aid of Sybil, who is the uh, highest-born unmarried woman, capital V Virgin possibly, to be sacrificed. The Watch's swamp dragon, Errol, uh, has been steadily reorganizing his digestive system to um, figure out what he's actually biologically meant to be, which apparently is a jet fighter, uh, and fights the king, eventually knocking the king dragon out of the sky with a, a with a supersonic shockwave. Carrot, being Carrot, immediately places the dragon under arrest and Mirandizes it. The Angmore Park crowd, being an Angmore Park crowd, attempts to close in on the king and kill it. Uh, while good-hearted Sybil pleads for its life, Errol returns from his elongated flight path to his subdued, oh, his subdued mate. It turns out the king is a queen. The patrician is reinstated as ruler of Ankh-Morpork and offers the watch anything they want as a reward. They ask only for a pay raise, a new tea kettle, and a dartboard. The tea kettle being a recent um, meal for Errol. And Vimes and Lady Sybil have a long-delayed romantic evening. It's a good so. book. <laughs> Justin, between Vimes and Veterinary, who do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about Vimes. Because he, he's the main character of this book. Let's, let's talk about him. As much as, as much as I love Veterinary, he is here for like 20 pages. And there's actually an interesting note on Vimes, which is that Carrot was originally supposed to be the protagonist of this book. And Vimes a kind of side character to give Carrot context. But Vimes, I guess, sort of took on a life of his own and um, became the star of the show, as it will, as it were. I could see that, uh, you know, with the with the dramatic setup for Carrot up in the mountains He's very much a capital P protagonist, but Vimes is more fun to follow in this. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many references with Vimes to, like, private detective novels, you know, up to and including the flickering neon sign outside his window. <laughs> it's not even, like, what he's referencing that I find interesting, but, like, his growth in this book is, like, extremely satisfying. Mm-hmm. I feel like Vimes is like the exact opposite of Rincewind. Rincewind has an innate ability for survival and avoiding the plot. Whereas Vimes' ability is just to run right into the plot and cause himself danger in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he repeatedly senses danger and runs towards it. He hits all of the good, like, noir-slash-cop story beats of, like, the good detective. And, but he does it without being, like, a a, a stock character. I, th- I think it's really interesting that, like, we start, we start the book off with him being, like, on binges of drinking. But, like, through, like, halfway through the book, I don't think, like, he doesn't touch alcohol again throughout the rest of the book. Not by choice. Yeah, but yeah, but he's but got, it's like he's got he, better he, things. 
Yeah. Which I, just... which I think is like, it's almost a Holmesian, like, I'm in this funk, I need something to do, and now that I've got it, I'm going to set my mind on it. Yeah. For me, it's not even that so much as Vimes is a person who wants to do the right thing and wants to make things right and, you know, actually fucking do the job that he's nominally hired for. Like, he is all about, in fact, justice. Uh, but he's been repeatedly told, actually, no, you can't do that because X, Y, Z and the city is like this and you know, you're just, you just don't have the power to do this. And like, once Carrot comes along and he realizes, oh shit, I now have the power to do this, if only because gestures at this hunk of boy. Uh, he just like, takes that and runs with it. And like, you see all of like this almost hope that he's completely lost come back to him. It's a very charming arc for me. And I think that's why Vimes and Veterinari going forward are such an important pairing because they both dearly love the city. Yeah. They just do it in very different ways. So I guess we should not go too deep into analysis and actually just introduce folks. But it's so hard when you have Vimes. <laughs> we're going mean, to be seeing him a lot. The, the quote that really sum, sums him up, I think, is, listen, if anybody ever sets fire to the city, it's going to be me. Which isn't true, but... <laughs> it's it's a mood, though. Yeah. It's a mood. And I think, I think, you know, that bit of discussion there brings us straight over to Vetinari, who we've we've seen glimpses of a few times, like in Sorcery. Um, we saw him and his small dog. Now he's, this is real Vetinari. This is the, um, don't let me detain you, mm -hmm. garbage boy. Um, he's this, it, it's, it's, he's interesting because he carefully maintains this air of being very sinister but he really does care about the city and he's not really he's a tyrant in some ways but in other ways he really does just want to do what's best for the city and keep it running and he's found some unconventional ways to do that like by you know installing the thieves guild i feel like he's the ultimate utilitarian yeah yeah like, by what's best for the city he means, like, a net good that, like, works rather than is, like, capital G good. Mm -hmm. No, yeah. that's exactly the case. He just wants it to case. work. It's a yeah, very delicate machine in he the, keeps carefully balanced. In the in the scene in the, the in his cell, Veterinari gives two aphorisms that I think are really good summaries. The first is, never build a dungeon you wouldn't be happy to spend the night Ooh. in yourself. Um, and the second is never trust any ruler who puts his faith in tunnels and bunkers and escape routes. The chances are that his heart isn't in the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which which was like, okay, I've got this. I've got what this boy is about. He's garbage. I love him. <laughs> yes, I love him. And, you know, just for fun while he's down there, he militarizes the rats. Yeah. 
because he needs a hobby. Yeah. He's an advisor. Is Bedivari the Thrawn of Discworld? Yeah. Oh, no! Oh, definitely. <laughs> he's he's absolutely I'm sorry the that I just said that sentence, but it needed he, uh, he's, to be He's, you know, the, the meditate. well, we can talk about it later, but the meditation on, on good and evil that he does at the end is, I think, an important one to talk about in terms of worldviews. Yeah. And, and that's... That'll definitely be interesting to talk about because that's in and of itself a really interesting counterpoint to both Vimes and Carrot because yeah. th- they form this really interesting triad. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're going to talk about veterinarian Vimes over and over and over again and a couple of these other characters as well, but we should still introduce some of the other major players. So as of the beginning of the book, the guard has just been whittled down from four to three people. We've already met Captain Sam Vimes. Uh, the other two are Sergeant Colon, uh, who is red-faced, one of life's sergeants. If he was not in a military or police capacity, he'd be like a butcher. Uh, very much the dad friend. Um, love him. Uh, keeps his marriage going through the fact that he apparently only interacts with his wife through, like, letters and making each other meals. Um, and then you've got Nobby Nobs. Uh, what is he? Corporal Nobby Nobs. Who has a certificate proving that he's human. Wait, well, is that- Yes, he is, he is, he is human because the animal kingdom would not accept him. I don't really understand 100%. I think it's just- He's just a very unique individual. I don't think you're supposed to comprehend Dobbs. <laughs> I I just I can't imagine trying to like cast Nobby Knobs in an adaptation or being the actor who gets cast as Nobby Knobs. <laughs> and you have to just deal with the fact that somebody looked at you and thought, yes, this man knobs. represents <laughs> See this. I, I, do you know who would do you know who would be do you know who would do it gladly? Anti Circus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. See, that, that's where I was gonna go. It's like perfect. So I feel like I feel like Nobby is like what happens when you take a waifish street rat out of a Dickensian novel and then like turn it into Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> Only he's also like the world's most mediocre soldier. Yeah. Well. Yeah, that, that's spoilers from future books. Spoilers from this book. That's he true. learned how to. Yeah. He learned the boots trick and right. displayed it in this book. Or right. Displayed the boots trick, and they said why he knew it in this book. Oh, you're right. I highlighted it and said, "This comes back with a vengeance." <laughs> oh boy, does it! And then carrot. Oh yes, I guess we haven't talked about carrot yet. Lance Corporal Carrot Iron Founderson. <laughs> This boy a himbo. Yeah, I, I honestly, I reached his first description. I highlighted it. And I said, Dorito boy. <laughs> Dorito I, boy. Yeah, I feel like he's, he really is that kind of Captain America ar- archetype in a lot he of ways. He is, and I love him for it. Um, He's, so, in some ways, he's like the stereotypical, like, or, or the platonic ideal of himbo. But at the same time, He's not as stupid as he 
appears to be, and he's not as stupid as he lets others think he is. Although that doesn't really come out in this book so much as future ones. Yeah. I do think that he is genuinely naive, and I can argue about that with points because I was highlighting semi-spitefully <laughs> as I read this time, but I think he's genuinely naive, but also, like, he's been taught that the world is a just and a fair place and it has rules that you can and should follow and he isn't ready to accept that it's different for anybody else and it's kind of amazing mm-hmm. because he he can back it up honestly he i mean this is again sort of giving you a peek into the future of the discworld novels but he is sort of the ideal new citizen for new for veterinary's future Ankh-Mor Park because he is a human from a dwarven background. He's blending cultures. Oh yeah, yeah. The important thing to know about Carrot Iron Founder's son is he is a dwarf. He's six foot six. His parents were humans, presumably. Uh, But he is a dwarf because he was raised by dwarves and that's his background. Uh, he got taken in by the King of the Dwarves up in the Ram Tops. And King in Dwarfish started, translates to Mine Supervisor. Yes. Well, <laughs> and then once he started getting too big for the mines, he's, what, like 15 in this book? Because they said he was nearly 16. Uh, Ages are weird in these books sometimes. He's, he's six foot six. We've said yeah. this. Uh, anyway, he's starting to get too big for the mines, and he's starting to flirt with a young dwarf, aka like a 60-year-old dwarf, and they come of age. They start going through puberty at like 55 or something like that. Uh, anyway, because they're not trying to encourage that, they send him away to go, you know, have a, a job in a human city. And Watchmen, according to somebody who only remembers Watchmen from, like, his grandfather's stories about them, is a, I don't know, respectable profession. So he has volunteered for the Night Watch, and he comes bearing all these ideals of justice and... He becomes a catalyst, like kind of the way like two flower is a catalyst. It like changes what's possible, but also like in a actually he's just like the ideal of lawful good. It's an interesting evolution from two flower as well, because they're in some ways a little bit of the same archetype of somebody who is naive and kind of good and pure at heart, but Carrot is a lot more evolved from a kind of writing skills standpoint and a lot more developed as a character than Two Flower ever was. He also develops faster in the book. He learns. Like the the carrot at the beginning of the book is different from the carrot that pulls the two other guardsmen from the water uh, at the end of the book. He very quickly becomes competent and figures out his role. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's important to talk about Sybil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Sybil, Sybil Ramkin, um, who does indeed come from old money in Ankh-Morpork, Pork um, and has devoted her life to the breeding and care and study of swamp dragons which are very odd little creatures, um, very prone to exploding 
um, because with the Swamp Dragons, we're actually taking the tack of like what what would it actually take for biologically a dragon to exist? And the answer is like a horrible biochemical processes in their stomachs that make them produce flame slash explode. And so she's she's devoted herself to these things and has never married. And it's just, it, she's one of my favorite characters from Discworld because she's just so formidable. Like, she is a force of nature and you will blast through and have her way. And and at the same time is she's again another incredibly good hearted character. Uh-huh. She's also and this is something that I actually really like about her as a side, is she's um she's always described as being a you know very large woman in whatever whatever dimension you want to take on that. And it's only ever described in a positive light um, that her being large just serves to accentuate how powerful and terrifying and formidable she is. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not wholly sparkles of light, but definitely very good. and, And that's where... At the same time, and that's that's kind of where I was going with it. It's a, it's it's in a positive light that's not like fetishized, etc. Um, that it's yeah, it's like that that she is she is a presence. <laughs> both. I love that the first time she's described, the first time, the first time Sam Vimes meets Sybil Ramkin, the door opened. Something dreadful loomed over him. Ah, good man. Do you know anything about mating? It boomed. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah, the the main issue I say that I have with her interacting with the plot is that she's kind of thrown into the damsel in distress role a few times, um, <laughs> and is there for Vimes to rescue. Um, which I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a fan of that, but I mean, overall, I really love her, and I, I think that I, I've got a more positive read on um, her portrayal in this book. I think. I think she's formed. She's formed out of some not so great stereotypes, but yeah, like. It's done so lovingly, and I think to a certain extent, she is such a force of nature that she transcends them, that, like, it's really easy to forget that she's kind of born out of those waters. She's also a representative of what I think would be much more familiar to British uh, readers, uh, a, a particular sub social subclass of extremely wealthy landed nobility who you know, walk around in repaired tweed and Wellington boots that have, you know, been in their family for generations. You know, it's a it's a very specific capital T thing in in Britain. Yeah, it's also has a reminder of like the of how like the what historically were like the gentlemen of of, of science in like the 19th century mm-hmm. of like you have this 
landed aristocracy that has like that are like well we don't have anything to better do with our time so we're gonna look into science and civil is like doing that for dragonology the thing is she is above all a horsewoman (laughs) she is like she's absolutely like between the stereotypes, like, I think there are definitely social stereotypes associated with, like, wealthy British women who are into horses. And then also, like, everything ar- everything silly around the dragons is also the things that are silly around horses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, like, pedigree dogs. I think it's specifically supposed to be horses just because, like, things like 14 fingers tall and... I think, I think there's also... <laughs> I think it's also definitely horses... Because there's the sort of fragility to the dragons that horses in some ways also have. Yeah. Um, mm. That I think... God, and the 14 billion different, like, gendered and age-related words for things, which is just, like, a slight exaggeration of how horses are. Yeah. Anna and I have, Anna, Anna and I have talked about this multiple times, but... Um, if you've watched Call the Midwife, there's a character played by Miranda Hart called Chummy, who, as soon as she came on screen, my wife and I were like, that's Sybil right there. I also feel like Sybil is somebody that Miranda Hart's character in her sitcom Miranda would know. <laughs> well, as a, as a tangent, too, since we've, at this point, learned the casting for the guard's... Um, inspired by oh gosh, show. Yeah. Um, I can I can now talk about this a little bit, and I'm very unhappy with the casting for Sybil specifically. I think it'll be interesting to see the show and see where it takes the universe. Um, it's very much inspired by rather than adapted from, but the casting of somebody who's kind of slim and conventionally pretty for Sybil, I felt like was a big mistake. Yeah, I solidly agree. So now that we've talked for 45 minutes about characters. um... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I just looked at the cast list. Why why is there no Navi in this show? Probably because Andy Serkis was unavailable. And Andy Serkis costs too much. How do you, again, how do you cast a character like Navi? Nobby just sort of shows up. <laughs> I don't think Nobby was born. I think Nobby was just spawned. Mm-hmm. Like a skin disease. <laughs> He's like a fungus. Uh, every sentence you guys add is worse, but also accurate. <laughs> uh, there were other characters, including Errol, the dragon, and also the dragon, who never gets a name. Lupin Wants is the main antagonist. Venari does not have a good track record with uh, with he's, uh, he's a help. sort of a major secretary to Venari, right? He is his private secretary, basically. Yeah. This it's so weird. It was weird going back to this starting from later books. Mm-hmm. Under our confusing section, I have a very specific thing. How does dragon sex work? <laughs> Very, very careful. I can imagine. You have to be flying. Is it like bees? Here's the thing. 
I'm just picturing is this her Anne now. McCaffrey bullshit? Yeah, that's just what I'm picturing <laughs> now, because I, I the only thing we know about it is that the male has to be flying. <laughs> oh god, wait, wait, wait. The swamp dragons are fire lizards. Oh Shit. no! I was never into, like, the Anne McCaffrey mainline books, but I really liked that YA series that was about the fire lizards. <laughs> I feel like you, like, like, Vida, just, like, placing a pin on you, I feel like you are exactly the person who, like, was really into, like, the the Harper Hall. That's, I like, just the, said, the, I just said uh, that, yes. Oh, I thought, <laughs> the, the fire was, yeah, okay, okay. I was like, I was trying <laughs> no, to make sure, because I'm like, was, just was there a I second was YA series? series. <laughs> yeah, no, that, Thank that, you for knowing me, though. This, this scans so perfectly. I never got into the mainline part in series. Even though I was like primed for it from a very young age, but I did love the Harper. Honestly, Hall you're you're better off having not read the main Pern series. Yeah, no, I've read two of the mainline Pern books, and I was like, you know what? I don't need to do this to myself anymore. So, do we want to talk about our impressions of the book, or anything else we need to clear up first, or nothing that isn't memes? All right, so Justin. Did all of our saying just wait until guards, uh, was that, were we right? Okay, okay, I get it. Terry Pratchett's fucking good at his job. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good, guys. It's really good. It's It's really really good. good. Uh, I think Um, even if it wasn't just completely Justin Bate, it would be very good. mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have to explain, like, for, for, for listeners how much this is my bullshit. I have been consuming murder mysteries for 25 years of my life, which is over 80% of it. Like, some of my earliest memories are watching Law & Order reruns. I wrote a murder mystery when I was 12. (laughs) As, like, a a school-assigned project, we were asked to, like, write a two-page short story. I wrote a 10-page murder mystery and got called (laughs) into the office. (laughs) Wow. Because this was a uh, post nine eleven world, and you know what, kids, kids being able, like you know, young children being able to talk about like complex forensics, rose some red flags, and that is my horrible origin story when it comes to procedural cop dramas. Is that I had been consuming them for far too much of my life, and they are such supremely my bullshit that I am not entirely sure that I did not go back in time from some future point. Drop subliminal messages into a sleeping Terry Pratchett in his bed, which is very creepy, and find a way back into the present. I mean, it probably was L-Space, right? Oh, yeah, probably. I was a librarian. I know it all about L-Space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I've also, like, I've also been consuming murder mysteries since, like, literally as long as I can remember, but... This is interesting. With this is where we can play off of each other with experiences because my history with murder mysteries is much more the like BBC British mystery style. Like I grew mm-hmm. up on like Dorothy Sayers and P.D. James, which is definitely not appropriate for children to read, but I read all of them anyway as a child. The Adam Dalgleish and and like like I see. I see a lot of TV series about people called Inspector yeah, something. Yeah, Poirot. Um, that's. Did you ever watch Brother Cadfile? That sounds familiar. 
There were books, but too. I like I I yeah, watched an awful too. lot of the like. Remember on PBS there used to be the like mystery theater or whatever it is. Whereas mm-hmm. I I watched so much of that masterpiece mystery theater with the Edward yes. Gorey, uh yes. intro. My my only exposure with like the British ones early was like the old Granada Grenada whatever uh, Granada Sherlock Holmes series. AKA the most perfect casting of Sherlock Holmes ever. I've still only watched like four episodes of it, but it's extremely good. It's the one from the eighties that has Jeremy Brett. Yeah, okay, this is definitely the one. Oh, it's Jeremy Brett. Yeah, yeah. I was like, who is this? Oh, it's Jeremy Brett, yeah. So Minna, what were what are your broad thoughts on this? Because uh, you just said you'd read this several times as well. So I think Justin was the only one new to this. This was probably my third or fourth Discworld book. I'm trying to think. But uh, it's just very, it's very good. It was definitely always interesting to me in that I knew, like, the fully formed Sam Vimes before I knew this Sam Vimes. So it was, like, really interesting to see how that happened. Mm. Uh, And this whole book is just so well done. Like, I love seeing that trajectory of Sam from has lost all hope and meaning to figuring out oh i actually can do something what i think it's like a really well like the tension between the different subplots is really done really well there's never like a bit that you're not kind of really into like i i highlight things that i'm really into sometimes while i'm going i'm like i just i have to stop highlighting at some point i said to myself as i highlighted the third thing on a page yeah Yeah. i was Uh, like are we gonna have to go through this page by page (laughs) and i just i love also, this book, I think, is, like, the most Ankh-Morpork book we've gotten yet. And mm. there's that, like, broken-in familiarity to the city. I love Sam's, like, he just, he's, like, worn these little, like, places for himself the way that you wear a spot in your favorite chair. And, like, he knows, you know, the six seconds that it takes Colon to go up, or that Colon pauses on the stairs. And I... There's something very endearing about this book. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I like that a lot. And that that the watch becomes a weird sort of family that Sybil and Errol get like drawn into it. Also, Veterinari's bullshit is fun. It's it's real good. I love this book. Yeah. Uh, I'm just sort of giving a sense of when this is being recorded. I'm very glad that we were reading this and not Pyramids. For for reference to your listeners, we we are all uh, uh we we are in this is March thirty first. We are presently in week day. I don't know what is time quarantining slash social isolation slash the apocalypse. I feel like Justin put this very eloquently at the when he read the summary for this book at the end of the last recording um we're here yes yeah definitely um i don't remember much about eric but we're in for a string of very yeah good books. and you know, let's just ignore pyramids but weird sisters and guards are like the start not they're both very good books on their own merits and they both are the start of two of the strongest um sub series and 
We're here. We're here, everyone. This is when the magic starts. If you've waited to actually read any of the books until now, start with Guards. Or Weird Sisters. Or Mort. But, I mean, if you read through just the Vimes books and then went back to the other ones, that's a totally valid way to do it. That would honestly have been the smartest way for me to do it. Through my experience with people, it is the the two series that people always talk to me about when they're when they're talking about their Discworld fandom. It is always Guards or or the Death series. And we have proven that they're both um, intensely your shit. Yeah, for for very different reasons. They they're they both hit like very specific subsets of my my interests. So I guess we should actually start diving into some of our lit crit. It seems like we had a bit harder of a time really nailing down the main thrust of the book. I think in part because it was much more of a plot-focused book. It was plot with some buttons as opposed to uh, social commentary. Yeah, and it, overall. it was just a fun book. Um there's there's a lot of there's a lot of side things though that I think Terry pinged off of that aren't necessarily like a main theme but are are things that he kind of pings off of a lot that we've got again some of the the bits with identity that you've got Sybil and Carrot on one side of that spectrum with you know they're very sure of who they are. And then on the other side, there's Vimes, who's, as Minna said, like, starts off hopeless and kind of having lost all sense of purpose. And watching him pull himself out of that and kind of rediscover what it means to be him. There's also some good human nature bits that aren't so much, aren't so much themes, but, you know, we've got, we've got the... Veterinary versus Carrot versus Vimes as this triad on opinions on the nature of humanity. Veterinary is largely the opinion that people are fundamentally bad. Carrot is of the opinion that people are fundamentally good. And Vimes is of the opinion that people are fundamentally people. Which is, we all know... Terry Pratchett's, probably Terry Pratchett's view as well. At least that's a theme that comes through in his work all of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sort of wrote it down as might versus right versus expeditious, which is a slightly different perspective. I think that was more of the balance between veterinary Vimes and the wants slash dragon when the dragon becomes the major player. Yeah, no, but that, I think that's a really good expression of kind of the different ways of going about things that we see in this book. I think there's also a lot of I- ideals versus reality here. Um, and like, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> I think Moorpork is a fantasy city, but it's uh, not a fantasy in that, you know, good versus evil is necessarily how we're going to do things. There's not really always a clear right way, and also there's such like a overwhelming like layers on layers of all of these bad things that have been added to get like Ankh Morpork is all of the worst impulses of humanity shoved into a 
small area next to a very polluted river and kind of having to figure out, well, if you do want justice, how the fuck do you actually do that here is seems to be a major thrust of this. Or even just like the idea that justice is possible in this city. Yeah. I mean, where, where where's death saying there's no, there's no justice. There's just me. Uh, just sort of a random side note. We now know that there is not only curry and hot dog and uh, sausages in a bun in the city, but also pizza. Yes. Oh, and we we see Harga's house of ribs again. Yes. When that showed up in the earlier book, I was like, oh, this place. Because, yeah, there's so many places that I'm so happy about and so familiar with because of this book. Mm-hmm. That place, the mended drum. Yeah, it's sort of a, a follow-on to the the comment about Carrot, you know, believing that everybody's fundamentally good. You see that laid out in explicit text when he crashes into that dwarven bar, which oh, has yeah. which has gone very much Ankh-Morpork as opposed to a traditional dwarven drinking establishment and shames them into, like, bawling and crying and uh, writing letters home to their 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 poor mothers and you say traditional dwarven drinking establishment like they have those <laughs> traditionally and i think part of the point is that they don't normally right. get drunk and they don't fight and they don't you know mm-hmm. they don't dress up in mail i think it's it's a really good expression of the pure power of carrot believing that there's a way that the world is and a way that people should be and just like the sheer force of his belief swaying mm-hmm. other people which i think is a big thing here and just a big thing in Discworld in general, just the force of like having a worldview and making other people see it. Yeah. Carrot is a steel bar around which the world bends. Oh, and I loved that scene with Carrot in the bar. Partly, you know, speaking of weird sisters, remember the scene with Tom John with the bar fight? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that they, they both have this sort of ability to, warp the world around them that's a but of course carrot is not you know descended from nobility or anything definitely not i was gonna say hmm, it's strange that these two characters both have this ability but (laughs) we have to wait so long until men at arms it's such a bummer there's no 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 no, but there's definitely it's gonna be seven months can i just point out to you something that is said that is just a throwaway and not supposed to be taken seriously. But when the Elucidated Brotherhood is meeting, where where is it? Where is it? Uh, one of them says that like his grandfather like told him the prophecy about when the king would come back was, "Yay, the king will come bringing law and justice and know nothing but the truth and protect and serve people with the sword." Yep. Yep. Protect and serve people yep. with his sword. Jumping. A minute back, though, um, you know, back to these major themes. Justin, you highlighted that that bit in that first scene with the Illustrated Brotherhood. That is such a, I mean, it feels very pertinent to today. Oh, I think, said the Supreme Grandmaster, tweaking things a little, that a wise king would only outlaw showy coaches for the undeserving. Mm-hmm. There was a thoughtful pause in the conversation as the assembled brethren mentally divided the universe into the deserving and the undeserving and put themselves on the appropriate Uh, side. Yeah. And Jesus Christ, if that is not 2020, I don't know what it is. That's unfortunately 
all humans for all yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's the leopards eating your face really? party, except uh, with a dragon. Skipping the other main themes because we don't seem to have picked any out. Um, I think we, wanna... we kind of just dumped them all in the <laughs> yeah. section. Yeah. I think we glommed them all together. <laughs> we just did a grab bag of themes. So, tropes? So many of them. So uh. many. <laughs> dirty Harry after Dirty Harry after Dirty Harry. There are multiple not, Dirty Harry references. Okay, not book. even just Dirty Harry. Just all of the noir or noir adjacent oh, yeah. references they could come up with. They even did a Casablanca reference just for the hell of it. Yeah, where the, that opening Vime scene where he's like, you know, basically lying in a puddle with the flickering neon light and like comparing the city to a woman who's done him wrong. The city is a worse name. Can I just talk about my favorite, one of my favorite interactions in the book when they're all carrying Karen home drunk and Vimes is drunkly like, the city is a woman and she'll just, the moment you're in love with her, she'll kick you in the teeth and, and, and Colon's over here like, ah, and wondering, uh, unhappily about his superior sex life. <laughs> this is the second uh, time in the book that Vimes has compared the city to a woman and, and, and he ends the book with comparing the woman to the city god the and and all the cop all the cop stuff like like Vimes going and making a damn chalk outline of where the dragon disappeared and uh, a wheel print or or actually I guess a, a footprint the waiting oh, yeah. bird. And, and like the plaster, the plaster. Yeah. I also enjoy just the silly little, what is it? Just little like references to like also just one sort of English police stuff. Like the translations of the dwarvish that Carrot does that are just like, hello, 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 what's going on here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. It's a mishmash of different crime fighting tropes and, and you notice that they moved into Pseudopolis yard yes of yeah, course Pseudopolis I noticed yard. that they moved into Pseudopolis yard <laughs> then there is the then there is the motto of the that is Ooh. on the old watch house <laughs> Fabricati DM punk. and then and then PVMC <sighs> make my day yeah. punk <laughs> 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 Which is just like, oh, you. I was like, I was like, this means make. No, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I put down my phone, walked away from my phone, and groaned. Yeah, I have trouble with uh, day versus God as a word yeah. in Latin. So I had to like go look at the L space annotation. And I was like, ah, ah, I understand now. I love Carrot's general cluelessness and naivete. And Justin, Justin, you finally got the Seamstresses Guild in all its glory. Yep. Oh, and you guessed her name right. I think. I mean, it was pretty. Time. It was pretty easy to figure out what they yeah. were once once there were certain things. Revealed. And you you guess you guess <laughs> Mrs. Yeah, Pond's name that right. Was okay. Wait. 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 The the section with about where, where they teach sort of teach carrot what a virgin is. God, yeah. What's a virgin? He said, an unmarried girl. Said Colin quickly. What, like my friend Reet? Uh, said Carrot, horrified. Well, no. Said Colin. 
She's not married, you know. None of Mrs. Palm's girls are married. Well, yes, said Colin. <laughs> well then, said Carrot with an air of finality. We're not having any of that kind of thing, I hope. So I've had arguments in the past with whether Col- Carrot is like as naive as he seems. And at least in this book, he totally is. And I over-identify with him on that in that respect. Because I, too, have been that person and have been the person the person that everyone is giggling with dramatic irony about because they don't understand the thing that they're asking about. And please, somebody at some point explain things to Carrot so he stops, so he doesn't look back in three years and realize, oh, that's why they were laughing the whole time. I have a, I have a note for Carrot that the, 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 this boy is kind of hard. Big of boy and double mass. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's, it's mainly that he's just uneducated at this point. He's a sponge. Yeah. He learns everything. He hasn't gotten the talk or anything. Right. Like, I think literally, like, his dad avoids giving it to him and then sends him off to the city. Somebody help him. He's 15. He doesn't know. Is this an appropriate place to talk about the million to one chance thing? Is that oh, true? Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm so happy that came out it's, here. It's, that was it's so lampshaded, good. subverted, lampshaded, lampshaded again, lampshaded again. What a payoff. What a payoff for that joke that keeps turning up. Right, because the reason that that uh, Arrow didn't work was because it was only 999,999 to one chance. Yep. Whereas them surviving the blast was a million to one chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, genre hero rules. People seem to be genre aware. Yeah. This is a very genre aware book and I love it. This must have been from something, from some other cop thing because I feel like I've read it somewhere else before. But the, the moment when they go see the, the place that's been burned down and they see the mysterious figure running away and... Uh, somebody says, you know, shouldn't we chase him? And he's like, oh no, it's an innocent bystander. And Vimes is like, well, maybe we should capture him just for the novelty of novelty. <laughs> yeah, the novelty of a innocent bystander. I'm also assuming that the idea that the dragon has a weak spot was a clear Tolkien reference. Oh God, yes. Is that a Tolkien thing or is that just a dragons in fantasy thing? Because I have never read Tolkien and I know that. It was a... I think it comes from Smog's Missing Scale, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, there's also... There's also... You could definitely also think that they intend to shoot the dragon in the balls. The vulnerables? Yes. That would have been slightly harder with this dragon. Yep. As is commented on by Vimes when he explains to Nabi that the dragon is a lady dragon. I want to say that the dragon's weak spot thing, like is actually it, that might be older than Tolkien probably um that might that might be a arthurian or medieval thing with uh the original dragon slayer what's his face st george this this might be me misremembering history but like the dragons have like a weak spot on their belly like it's soft there mm. because dragons should have tummy scratches <laughs> uh i googled saint george dragon weak spot and immediately got the article how did the hobbit smell get his weak spot oh. <laughs> <sighs> yeah uh saint george uh drove his sword into the dragon's underbelly under the wing where there were no scales there we go so yeah it's just a convention with dragons that they're relying on 
So what was what was the button for everyone? I mean, I have a few. Um, you go for it. I I so mine is a specific thing that um, wands and both wands and um, veterinary point out that they both state that only bad people can run things. And that that is them that is them foisting their their belief of how the world works on Vine, and I don't think that is so much like meant to be as like a thing. But for me, it clicked of is no, that is how bad people want you to believe that only that is that only bad people have this like the the stones to do what's really necessary, and that good people just are only good for like revolutions and wanting a better tomorrow. But like, I, I think it's like it's it's a. I I don't think that with veterinary it's it's meant to be as quite to the level of like that one's using it. But but it's but it's a it's a sort of disarming tactic of like that you have to be a bad person. That being a bad person is okay. But yeah, for me it was just like it, it seems like a rationalization that pe- that bad people are using. I think in Veterinari's case, it's more just like that he has to, maybe he has to justify himself in that two vimes, which uh, we'll get down to this in Shipping Corner uh, in a little bit, because <laughs> I, I don't think that Veterinari justifies himself to many people. Yeah, I think that the, at least when with Veterinari's uh, version of it, I think he's asserting, there's a subtext there that the good people are there to keep the bad people in check, but that the bad people are the ones who move things forward. But then also, you know, the unspoken part that is in the entire book is that that's because the truly good people just want to be, you know, good police. And there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of like things that I want to reference about the wire in here. I think the commentary is a little bit more, it's less that good people can't run things. It's that bad people want to run things. And they can plan. I'm going to scroll back actually to the different tropes they're engaging in. A veterinary at least, and to a certain extent once, are definitely, definitely playing into just full-on Machiavelli. They see the world in these very stark terms and like selfishness is the motivation for everything and also the only way to deal with things is to use that selfishness basically i think that this book is about pushing back on that and like hey maybe things aren't just the way they are maybe they are the way we made them and we can change that yeah Though also, you know, judging by later books, Veterinari sees this new Vimes and is like, oh, good, a useful tool. Well, I mean, he see- he sees everything and says, oh, good, a useful tool. Yeah. Unless it's a dragon because a dragon doesn't have obvious levers. Right. Uh, there's sort of a, a mini button that I pulled out during the, I want to say coronation. Oh, no. Uh, it's during the, the fight between the quote-unquote rightful heir and the dragon uh 
Vimes went back to the rank in a gloomy rage. Say what you liked about the people of Angmore Park. They had always been staunchly independent, yielding to no man in their right to rob, defraud, embezzle, and murder on an equal basis. This seemed absolutely right to Vimes' way of thinking. There was no difference at all between the richest man and the poorest beggar, apart from the fact that the former had lots of money, food, power, fine clothes, and good health. But at least he wasn't any better, just richer, fatter, more powerful, better dressed, and healthier. It had been like that for hundreds of years. Yeah. Also, Sybil does not like kings. She says, some of them are fearful oiks, you know. Uh, wives all over the place and chopping people's heads off, fighting pointless wars, eating with their knife, chucking half-eaten chicken legs over their shoulders, that sort of thing. Not our sort of people at all. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good line. I'm trying to find the one of my lines from the dragon, actually. Oh, when he's interrogating Wants and is horrified at just how evil people are yeah 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 that's good yeah the you have the effrontery to be squeamish i thought at him but we were dragons we were supposed to be cruel cunning heartless and terrible but this much i can tell you you ape the great face pressed even closer so that once was staring into the pitiless depths of the eyes we never burned and tortured and ripped one another apart and called it morality. That's that's such a good line. Yeah. And then, you know, discussed further by the people going to, to take uh, Sybil to the the uh, sacrificial rock. The One of them says, uh, uh, wouldn't want us running around killing its own kind, referring to the... Uh, their theory that maybe this, the dragon wouldn't want them killing the swamp dragons. And the other one says, well, sure, people do. And the first one responds, ah, well, that's because we're intelligent. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a line. And we've already, I think we've already gone over my absolute favorite line from this book, which is the elucidated brethren dividing the world into the deserving and the undeserving and placing themselves on the appropriate side of that line, which is like, you know, 15 pages in and you're like, well, shit. I'm like trying to find a good button, but it's just, I feel like Vimes has so many like little moments. There is a good interaction with Veninari towards the end or Vimes... Vimes pause. I think it's after Veterinary had his like I hit laid out his idea of like evil people are basically bad at heart. Vimes paused at the door. Do you believe all that, sir? He said about the endless evil and the sheer blackness. Indeed, indeed, said the patrician, turning over the page. It is the only logical conclusion. But you get out of bed every morning, sir. Hmm? Yes, what is your point? I'd just like to know why, sir. Oh, do go away, Vimes, there's a good fellow. <sighs> yeah. But he has a lot of moments, like like even just like a few pages later when he's thinking about how dragons got so... Mm. Anyway. It's not even that he's... Like, he wants justice, but I think he's also, like, good at seeing, like, how things really are. But not, like, in quite so cynical a way as Veterinary and Co. Speaking of Veterinary as well, I also love that moment where Vimes and Vetinari are in the dungeons and there's that perspective switch and Vimes looks at the door and realizes that, you know, it has the 
bars and the bolts and all the things that you'd expect a dungeon door to have. But they're all on the inside. And <laughs> that it's, um, you know, that, that thing of, like, switching the perspective and, like, that was that's that's such a good moment where we're seeing how Venari's mind works. That you know he's perfectly content to be thrown into the cells because he he's not you know then he's in a fortress. You know he's he's been locked into this secure cell that. You know, now they can't get to him. You have me exactly where I wanted to be. Yeah. This is almost a silly question, but what did we like about the book? Yes. <laughs> Everything. Everything. <laughs> yes. So, so Veninari. So Veninari, I want you to take Machiavelli. I'm like, let's let's put Machiavelli. Let's just stand him up. Now, listeners, I want you to go into YouTube and. Google Vince Carter Olympics 2000 dunk. Veninari is doing that over Machiavelli's face. <laughs> because this boy is, I mean, it's every character that you've wanted to play in D&D or that you've wanted to run as a GM, but we're not that good of writers to do mm-hmm, and we can't act that yes, well. Yep. And that's how it actually is. That's the dream. Yeah, like that, you know, he can he can quietly steeple his fingers together um and stare off in the middle distance and like and like and mean it. Also, I love I love these little I love the little swap dragons. I love them. They're, I okay. They're... I love the entire guardhouse, staunchly pretending that they're not desperately like fond of this tiny weird swamp dragon that they've <laughs> suddenly adopted. All hiding the toys, the small expensive toys that they've bought it. Yeah, that is that eight. What's that subreddit about dads with pets that they didn't want? That's that's the guardhouse. This book. I mean, all of the things that they're setting up with for Carrot is really one of my favorite things here. He sees these flawed guardsmen and just, like, very carefully just learns the pieces that are good. Yeah, he sees the best in people and then suddenly that becomes real. (laughs) Right. Like, he, you know, there's a scene where Nobby... Where, where the the pal- the newly formed palace guard uh, come to demand that they go find virgins to sacrifice. And Nobby is like, hey, I know you. You're blah, blah, blah. And I know your mother who died in the sweets vat and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, pin that Justin uh, for the next book, the, the next uh, guards book. You're expecting me to remember things that are going to be seven months from now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That, that's, that's... <laughs> but, but Carrot watches Nobby know somebody underneath their uniform and learns from that. Uh, earlier in the book is one of my favorite things, uh, which is such a, such a genre trope, but there apparently is a Miranda rights for it for Ankh-Morpork or was. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. 
Yeah, Carrot, you have the right, re- right to remain silent. You have the right not to injure yourself falling down the steps on the way to the cells. You have the right not to jump out of high windows. You do not have to say anything you see, but you, anything you do say, well, I have to take it down and it might be used in evidence. So good. Um, also, can I just say that scene where I tried to conjure this early and failed? That scene where Vimes tells Carrot to charge these men? Yes. Yeah, that's such a turning <laughs> yes. point for Vimes. And then there's a moment where he's like, "Shit, can I not actually do this? Did he run off? Was I wrong?" And then Carrot comes in like the cavalry. With, he was just, and it turns out he axes. can in fact actually do this. He was just building up a good head of steam. It's also it also sets up the the end of the book where um, yet again, <laughs> the book right? Him. He's killed by a metaphor <laughs> because dwarves do not understand metaphors. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So there's a there's a really good footnote. Um, I think it's one of the earlier ones. There's a lot of good footnotes. Um, yeah, no, there's a lot of good ones in this one. Uh, this one, this one is because it has like it, it's a, it's sort of a historical reference. The Guild of Firefighters had been outlawed by the patrician the previous year after many complaints. The point was that if you bought a contract from the Guild, your house would be protected against fire. Unfortunately, the general Mockport-Bork ethos quickly comes to the fore, and firefighters would tend to go to prospective clients' houses and groups, making cloud comments like, very inflammable-looking place this, and probably go up like a firework with one carelessly dropped match. Know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And that's really how... Early firefighting societies really actually worked. Also, I feel like it dovetails very nicely with the concept of insurance and how it has uh, yeah. continued to flourish in Ankh-Morpork. Yeah, two flower left Including with the Thieves Guild. Yeah. What a good reference to the past. Yeah, the, the very explicit setting out, too, of how Veterinari took control of the guilds by, by legitimizing them. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. was the most clearly laid out we'd had it. Well, Aaron, you have a really good description for Carrot that I'd love for you to say on on tape. Uh, the the lawful good is not lawful stupid. Well, I mean, that's more later books, really. He's kind of yeah. lawful stupid right now. He's not stupid. He's, he's lawful. He's just inexperienced and he lacks the context right. for a lot of things. But he's not stupid. Lawful ignorant? Lawful ignorant. Lawful mm. naive. Yeah. Lawful innocent. Lawful, yeah, lawful, lawful naive. Lawful innocent. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And oh, oh, did we already mention that, that they established that Vimes is naturally knurred? Oh, yep. Yep. God, yeah. Because um, Colin, Colin is explaining that as... Like, explaining you know, explaining why Vimes drinks and is saying, you know, that he's, um, he's perpetually, you know, a few drinks soberer than normal people are when they're sober. So he, he has to drink to, to level out. I just have so many feelings about Vimes being this, like, naturally being kind of a bright shining light who has just had to dim that light. For years and years and years and years and years. And then I just have a lot of feelings about Sam Vimes. Leave me alone. There was another moment um, later in the book where they basically lay out the the virgin sacrifice thing being a trolley problem. 
Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that one in the shipping corner. Uh, I will join oh. you. <laughs> We're gonna have a lot of material for shipping. Uh, there's corner, some good romance in this book. There's at least two ships. Yeah, I think. Get based on what people have said so far. I think. Uh, yeah, and I have to. I have to point out one of my favorite running bits in this book which is carrots protective <laughs> which is quite large apparently uh, that it wasn't made for him though it was made for the boastful like grandfather of what's his face yeah the, there's this ongoing gag of people like kneeing carrot in the groin and then you know, having their knees be damaged. It's it's great. Also, Karis letters home. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got a lot, I've got one more thing to say. I fucking love Ankhmore Park. Mm-hmm. Why do we have to set books anywhere else? <laughs> I know. It's so good. My favorite books have all been ones that were all about like the ridiculous House of Cards that is Ankhmore Park. Yeah. Like, I think in this book, it, it's a little bit more New York than London. Just because, I, in my mind, all cop drama, all cop shows turn into like New York. Especially ones involving shitty, dirty cops. Which, the watch aren't. But they're like the best possible version of the cops that turn into ditty, shitty, dirty cops. Yeah, it, it's, um... I mean, Nobby is probably actually dirty. I mean... Yeah, he's very dirty. It's just... That the entire city's dirty, so they can't be dirty right. cops. Uh, and I'm assuming you've watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, Nobby and Colin are Scully and... Um, oh, God, they are! And Hitchcock. Oh, they're horrible, horrible garbage people. <laughs> I love them. Complete with, like, the surprisingly, surprisingly high taste from Nobby. Right. Oh my god, Nobby's fucking Like, like Scully's an opera singer. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the two of them are just... Which, which begs the question of which Brooklyn Nine-Nine characters are Vimes and Carrot? Carrot is Peralta. Is he Peralta or is he Terry, though? I think he's Peralta because there's the youthful enthusiasm. True, true. And I will say that Vimes is Halt. Does that make Angua Beatrice's character? What's her face? Beatrice That's spoilers. Character. Yeah, we can't we can't talk I about know, Angua I'm yet. <laughs> I can I can remove my I can remove my headphones. That was a side note. That wasn't an actual contribution. I don't know shit about Brooklyn Nine Nine. Uh, any other favorite moments for people? Too many to list. I know. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, it's it's At some point Sybil suggests that Dragons showing up is her and Vimes' song. Right. Chef Kiss. <laughs> L Space. Kind of a Casablanca moment at the end too, right? Yeah. I also love Vimes in like a freaking bathrobe in the stables, protecting Sybil. Wielding a dragon as a pistol. Yeah. I know. I love it. Doing a very good riff on the Dirty Harry 
Do you feel lucky, Punk? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Speaking of the... How did we get this far? And I haven't gushed over the librarian yet. <laughs> You've been oh, distracted. Because there's too much this to love is... in this book. Yeah, no, like... Like, one of my high points of previous novels is, like, we are... Boop, but it's into recording. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> um, and yeah, no, all like L space. The the librarian being like, a book has been stolen. Is, we deal with it. That is worse this. than murder. Worse. <laughs> so good. And the librarian wielding his badge. And because of peanut shells, it's implied that he's sort of in scenes, even if you don't see him. Do we want to talk about stuff that is very current? Or is that too painful? I think we can, I think we can talk about it. Because, you know, we, we touched on it earlier, but I really think that, you know, this idea of humans just sort of wanting to get one over on somebody else, really is is maybe the key theme of this book. That piece with the brethren really, really hit home for me. And it really reminded me of that meme of, you know, that the people who earn $700 an hour have convinced the people who earn $25 an hour that the people who earn $7 an hour are the enemy. And it's interesting too, because like the the thing that the, it suggested in at the end of the book, uh, when the librarian looks at the last couple of pages before the rest of the book is burned to a crisp, it's implied by the author, who knows if they're right, that the dragon that you summon is shaped by the shape of your head, basically, uh, and mm-hmm. whether you have good and pure intentions. Nine reeds. Does everybody remember nine reeds, the dragon? Right. That, that two flower conjured. Exactly. I feel, I, yeah, I feel like that tracks with Discworld, not just how that stuff has worked in the past, but like how Discworld is. That your your focus shapes your reality or determines your reality. Yeah. Like I feel like if Carrot summoned the dragon. It would be, you know, a noble protector of the city. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Do you want to talk a little bit about your concern about uh, Nobby and Colin? I'm not sure if it's... It's it's not really a concern so much. Um, They're... I feel like they're a little bit less... Um, I think that their archetypes haven't aged quite as well as like Vimes and Carrot, especially since, you know, I think that since the watch is at this point evenly split between Nobby and Colin, who are both a little bit slimy in their own ways, um, versus the, the good boys, it's, it's, a little bit odd, but then you know, thinking about it, you know, Nobby and Colin really are like the Hitchcock and Scully that they do have a interesting role in that that's mirrored in a bunch of kind of 
procedural cop things. Um, but you know, I, I feel like they're a little bit harder to identify with um, and root for than Vimes or Carrot. Yeah. I think that they're, I think that they're both a little bit less fleshed out and a little bit slimier in guards than they are when we see them later. I feel like that's everyone though. Like, cause I think guards is the beginning of like, yeah. The watch blossoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we saw Vimes's journey to being a different person. Just everyone else is going to have to get dragged along also. Yeah. So yeah, like compare, uh, what, the what Colin asks for uh, at the end of Guards to what Carrot asks for at the end of Men at Arms. Sorry, Justin, you're gonna have to wait seven months. I don't really understand the jokes about Nobby, but I don't love them either. If that makes sense, like there's something weird to me about like this one person is somehow so not even repulsive, but weird that he's not human and i'm like i I don't know about this but yeah the the dehumanization of nabi is something that i've always found a little bit off especially because he's like honestly very deeply human (laughs) as a just in general like he he's pure Mm -hmm. unfiltered ink more cork humanity so I think that might actually almost be a comment on other people than on Nobby, really. But I don't think that there's ever really any narrative pushback like the narrator. on that. Yeah. Like, it's the narrator talking about him like that. Yeah. So, Justin, you just want more veterinary? Um, yeah, I, could, I, I don't think this is a book that I wanted to see focused on him, but I could stand to have, like, 25% more veterinary, like 25 pages instead of 20. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just more... I wanted one more scene of him being an asshole earlier on. I think that's the only thing I really wanted. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's just like, I would have liked like one, or two, like one more scene with him before he got deposed. Yeah, that would have been fun. But don't worry, we'll, we'll see plenty of vent- veterinary. Give it to me. Come on. Uh. I, I love guards in that we're... Also, finally, at the point where we're starting to actually see that the world ties together and that all of these novels tie together, um, you know, in a roughly chronological order and that it's one unified place um, because we've got we've got a bunch of fun stuff like there's there's the rats in veterinary's dungeons that are calling us back to sorcery. Um, although I know we all forgot that book. Um, the, the dragon itself has the fun parallels to the dragons in Light Fantastic. Um, and I, I think my favorite one, uh, and, and the, and the, the dragons in Light Fantastic are in fact fueled by imagination and a strong magical field, not unlike the dragon that we see in, guards that it's it's the same concept that's you know fleshed out fully at this point and i think my favorite little reference is that 
there's a reference to a young duke and duchess in Stowhelet who are looking for a guard captain. We all know who those are. It's it's Morton Isabel. Also, 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 Magrat gets referenced. Yes, she does. His sister had been sent down to the village to ask Mistress Garlic, the witch, how you stopped spell how you stopped spelling recommendation. Just so many little references. Although the Stohelet stuff then throws a wrench in the works of any sort of calendaring. Um, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but whatever, time is a flat circle or something. Time is an illusion. Lunchtime, doubly so. To reference another British humorist. Mm-hmm. Hey, Justin, I don't know where this would fit in, but didn't you want to talk about your theory of cults and the Enlightened Brethren? Oh yeah. So, so I have a, I have a joking theory of cults that I generally give out to like any role playing game group I give, is that cults are either one of two things, they're either a fashy thing of people trying to grab power, or they're a sex thing. I mean, I feel like the dividing line there is slightly more narrow than you're giving it credit. I mean, I think in in this case I mean, they're, they're both they're about linked, power, but they're. Just personal. Yeah, they public. are. It's just that it's usually one of those two things. There isn't a huge divide between them, and they often overlap. But usually, it's either uh, we want to get power thing, or we want to we want to fuck around thing. <laughs> it, it, normally, with the second one, it's rich people. It's a good theory. It is a theory, so it is still under revisement. It's a hypothesis, if you will. Justin's unified hypothesis of cults. Do we want to go to the shipping corner? <laughs> I'm down. I think I think it's time. So, uh, Civil Vibes. Terry can actually, when he tries, write a good romance. Eighth time is a yeah. charm. <laughs> And it is a good, stable romance going forward, too. Like, it's funny because it's not... He's still not good in, good at writing the build-up to a romance. But once they're together, they are just very good and very funny. There are some and very awkward scenes where they are both very awkward around each other. Yeah. I, I think like- that's the thing. He, he needs to write more established relationships. <laughs> I actually felt like this was pretty good at the build-up that, you know, all of the others, the build-up has been not great whenever there's been a, you know, a new romantic relationship established within the text of the book. But here, Vimes and Sybil being, like, weird and awkward around each other. I, I really enjoyed it, that it felt very real that these were two people who, like, you know, are interested in each other and don't have, I seems like, a lot of romantic experience. And their awkwardness was just really endearing to me. Uh, th- that moment where he's, where Vimes is leaving uh, and he really wants her to like call after him and he hears the door shut when he's like a third of the way down the driveway and is just absolutely shattered by that was such a great moment. One thing that I think is like that, like stood out for me is that 
if they hadn't ended up together, I still would have enjoyed it. Because I think the characters, like, have, compared to a lot of romance we've seen, they just have such good chemistry interacting. Yeah. Even if it is not about awkward romantic stuff. I think that's honestly the thing for me is, like, I am so into, like, how they interact as people. I have a little bit of a harder time parsing the shift from, like, friendship to attraction for them. But I am very into them uh, being partners and being together. And now I'm going to make a little bit of a side trip into a dumpster here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Hi. Yeah. My name is Justin. Are we in the VV dumpster? I ship... I'm gonna. Sh- I ship my veterinary. Yeah, you're not alone. No, I don't ship them. They have fucked. <laughs> <laughs> they have very strong. We have boned before energy. Oh. Here's the thing. I'm gonna disagree with you here because I think that veterinary is not really considered vimes before now. Beyond like that drunk kind idiot. of relying yeah. on his mediocrity. Also, I'm gonna be real here and say that I don't know that I personally ship it but i very much enjoy seeing friends ship it you know that kind of like secondhand shipping that you get sometimes a lot of people i follow on twitter talk about this ship and it's very fun yeah like i don't ship it but i enjoy it yeah no i'm a garbage person honestly my biggest problem with this is i don't know who bottoms that relationship (laughs) because vibes is a human disaster but veterinary is a humongous brat (laughs) <laughs> I said we were going into the real dumpster here. I'm so glad that we're not recording video because I don't know what my face is doing right now. <laughs> you, you got the Picard face palm going on. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I will say that it would be very funny if you pushed back against the impression that everyone has that, like, the text is like everyone is would would be happier if Fedenari was like a dom, right? Is that what the right. implication is there? Or, or or a sub. I think they're implying that if it's young women in dungeons, then he's probably the one in charge. Uh, so it'd be funny if you push back against that and he is not. Uh, but I don't know. And I don't know if I can physically consider it. <laughs> I, I think that... That that I mean, um, go with all of the shipping that you want. I think that Vetinari is pretty is as close to Ace as you can get. Dallas. Yeah, he's he's the kind of he's the kind of character that I latch onto as one of us only because the text goes out of its way to make him inhuman by making him not into that, and it's like I don't like that, but also I'm going to latch onto it anyway, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I wasn't going in that direction so much as he's constantly established as basically ascetic. Well, yeah, oh, that's what I mean, though, that like, but there's there's like a, a bit in the text where it's like they couldn't find he right. didn't have any vices that they could find right. and go into the thing where they're like they would be happier if they could find out about his weird sex life. And he's kind of set apart from the rest of humanity. Huh? We don't tell, talk about his origins until Nightwatch, huh? They do not talk about his origins yet, no. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Justin. You're going to have to wait two years for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the bright side, you'll you'll perhaps be able to talk coherently while the rest of us sob endlessly. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, re-Vetinari vibes. 
I need it to be the longest slow burn in existence. And I also need it to not invalidate Sam Sybil, which is a tall order for a ship, I think. Yeah. I think I think that's my big problem with shipping veterinary vimes because the Sam Sybil is just so strong. It's it's very and, and it good. gets better. Gets better, buddy. But I'm also multi-shipping trash. Yeah, no, I'm I'm the same. I'm the same. I'm multi-shipping trash, especially in, like, big universes like this. Uh, There's a a thing sometimes. Some canon ships are, like, the idea of even trying to break them up makes me very uncomfortable. And somehow Sybil and Sam have ended up that. But also there's that thing in fan fiction where you can be like, you know what? polyamory fixes everything in ships <laughs> that might have to be the case there i'm going to have to come in as, as the voice of the editor here and say we have to put a pin in vimes veterinary until we've read men at arms until we've read what until we've read men at arms because Seven because there are some scenes there are some scenes in there i mean we're gonna come yeah. back yeah, we're yeah. gonna come back to it because i'm also gonna have to come back to it with other watch books i know for sure yeah yeah I, I not, I'm not sure if this is the correct point to say this, but I have to say what my mental image always is for Veterinary. Steve fucking Jobs. What? <laughs> Don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. Like cancer years, Steve Jobs? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. But that's it's a little bit my 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 mental image for like a veterinary's appearance you're not wrong especially the black turtlenecks all the time thing i mean um, that's the one part of the casting for for um this the show that i'm fascinated by oh my god anna chancellor yes yes i love her and she's so good for the role yeah. she's so good at doing that like upper class ice queen thing because the other the other TV versions have had um, Charles, Dance, Charles Dance, which is also yeah. perfect. Uh, oh oh yeah. my! Tywin Lannister. Yeah, he has played Tywin Lannister and Vitnari. Yeah, it's very good. Oh my god! Okay, I need, I I feel like the, the, this is gonna. Can we do like just just like? Can we watch this? Yeah, and then do, and then and then do like an emergency pod for the. For the 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 apocalypse, yeah, definitely. Uh, Jeremy Irons has also played Veterinary. Oh man, what? Yeah, what? what a, he always gets cast with good good act, actors. Um, can we just have a quick fan casting corner? We've already said Miranda for Civil, but I have another one that came into my mind today, and I want to say that if it was not you know twenty twenty, but like a century ago. <laughs> Margaret Dumont, who I know best from the Marx Brothers movies where she always sings, she has that same, like, steamroller energy that Sybil does, and now I cannot get that mental image out of my head. Okay, my head casting for Vimes right now uh, is Liam Cunningham. Liam Cunningham, let me see if I can find him. Um, he was Davo oh, Seaworth oh, in him. Game of Thrones. Oh, no, that's not bad. You know, I will. I know he's Davos Seaworth, but I, o- I will always think of him as the dad in A Little Princess, I think. Yeah. 
partly because like I would love to see him as a cop, like as a, as a cop, because that like sounds like he like that. That's just like that's got a good brain feel. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a pretty solid um, vibes casting, I think, especially for the Night Watch era. Obviously, we've got Chris Evans as Carrot, but, but like, but like hot teen Chris Evans. <laughs> Cause he, cause uh, like cause Fantastic we, cause Four, Chris Evans. Chris Evans was in no, no before that, the perfect score, Chris Evans. Uh. Because Chris Evans was in a heist movie, like at like oh wow, he's baby. So he was like early, early twenties, but yeah, like like he was in a heist movie about stealing the SAT scores, and it was with like yeah, oh yeah, okay. Scarlett Johansson was also in this movie, so very, like, weird and just, like, things. But, yeah, it, it is, yeah. Chris Evans was 23 so in So this movie. is very stupid, but my persisting image for Carrot, and it's completely incorrect, is the spa owner from Disney's Frozen. That's just always somehow where my brain goes back to. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, though. Okay, so, so, Colin, uh, because I've been watching Person Interest... Person of interest, the actor who plays uh, Lionel Fusco on that, uh, Kevin Chapman, has like the perfect. He basically like he is the perfect typecast dirtbag, dirty cop sergeant, and so that is that is my colon, even though he is not British or anything. But I just picture Vimes as like such like a skinny bloodhound type of person. Okay, wait, no, I've I've got a good carrot. Have you seen the Umbrella Academy? Tom Hopper. He plays Oh, one. yeah. <laughs> he's definitely the right build. Oh, he's yeah. in Black Sails. Oh, yeah, no, no. I I'm totally down yeah, for no, that. Yeah, no, I can see that. Especially older carrot. Yeah. I mean, he's got the he's got the build. Having seen him in Black Sails, he definitely has enough oh you poor soul energy. I mean, you know, with the right makeup, uh, Nobby and Colin could be played by um, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. It's not them, but I could see that being good in an adaptation. But I don't know which would be which. Okay, we need to wrap this up. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we got distracted by the face cast. Yeah, uh, I would give this book one million out of one million chances. I'm giving it ten out of ten strange items eaten by Errol the Dragon. I'm going to give this book 237 out of 237 citations from the laws and ordinances of the cities of Ankh and Morpork. Leave me alone. Uh, 98 out of 99 bottles of beer on Sam Fimes' wall. All right, Justin, you get to do your bit. All right. Yep, so go into the search engine here. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm pulling up the back cover for Eric. We are now 8 out of 42 books of the way here. We've only got 34 more books. Uh, we are now on Eric, Discworld. Uh, there is a crossed out name on the cover, Faust. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, no. Is this... This is the only thing I know about this book. I'm flipping the table now because, damn it, I read Faust in college. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. I see something on this cover that I like and something that I don't like. 
There, there is a lot of legs in this cover. There are a lot of legs. Eric calls up a demon to grant him three wishes, but what he gets is the world's most incompetent wizard. God damn it, Prince Wind! <laughs> Eric is the Disc Girl's only demonology hacker. The trouble is he's not very good at it. All he wants is the usual three wishes. To be immortal, rule the world, and have the most beautiful woman fall madly in love with him. The usual stuff. But what he gets is... Rincewind, the disc's most incompetent wizard, and Rincewind's his luggage, the world's most dangerous travel accessory. <laughs> Terry Pratchett's hilarious take on the Faust legend stars many of the disc world's most popular characters, and an outrageous adventure that will leave Eric wishing once more, this time quite fervently, that he'd never been born. We're back to Rincewind, but at least it's short. It's very short. The Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music for this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. The intro music is Take a Chance. The outro is Fuzzball Parade. Both are by Kevin McLeod, and both are used under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show on Twitter at atuinpod which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>